When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to this week's episode of the Violin Podcast, where we interview violinists from around the world. I'm your host, Eric Mugala, and I'd like to welcome you to this really amazing episode today. We have a real great treat for you. But before we get to the guests of today's episode, I want to thank you for our returning listeners. And if you're new to us, please be sure to hit the subscribe button and hit the bell notification so that way you get notified for when you Violin Podcast episodes come out. It really helps us out to provide more great, amazing content for you. We recently launched our blog on the Violin Podcast website, and I like to just direct your attention to this blog post. And the title is How to Save Time in the Practice Room. I know if you're like me, when you're really, really busy, you are trying to find every single second in the day just to find time to practice. Well, in today's episode, I'm happy to share with you this blog post. So if you're interested in reading more on how to save time in the practice room, I'm going to leave a link to the blog post in the podcast show notes for you to take a look at. It's a short read, maybe four or five minutes long, but I think it'll offer you some really valuable advice on things that you may not even have thought about when it comes to practice and how to save little increments of time for you to be more efficient and more successful in your practice. Today, we have a real treat for you for this week's episode of the Violin Podcast, because not often do I get to speak with multiple instrumentalists on a single podcast episode, but my guests today are the first violinist of the Calador String Quartet and the violist of the Calador String Quartet, Jeremy Berry and Jeffrey Myers. They're here today to talk about their recent Beethoven String Quartet album and talk about some of the things that makes Calder String Quartet unique and some of the things that they've learned in terms of chamber music playing. And they are also going to talk about some of the instruments that they have played on for the string quartet recordings for the Beethoven. And you want to stick around to the end of the episode because both Jeffrey and Jeremy are going to give advice for aspiring chamber musicians conservatory students and for anyone who's a music lover or an instrumentalist you don't want to miss it so stick around to the end thank you for jeremy and jeffrey for being today's guests jeff and jeremy we have uh the two violinists from the caldor string quartet joining us on the violin podcast today i see that jeff uh has his coffee ready this morning because just like all violinists on a, on a morning we have to be caffeinated because we are somewhat of night owls because we perform in the evening. I have to tell you that I have been a big fan of Turkish coffee recently. I don't know if you guys ever had Turkish coffee. It's not the strong. It's strong with the little cardamom. I love it. It's great. Um, but I would love to just dive right in to um, Calder Quartet. And we're going to be talking about your, your Beethoven recordings that's going to be released in February. And the beginnings of Calador. And I think I think that would be a great place to start, actually. Because I remember when you guys just formed as a quartet in Colburn that I received a recording or I listened to a recording of your Mendelssohn yeah. way back when. And I I enjoyed your sound as a as a collective group from the very beginning. I would love for us to dive into that. How did Calador start? Um, how did you guys all meet? And what was the the turning point of where you guys were like, okay, I want but we should start a quartet? Uh, that's a very good question. Well, first of all, thanks for having us. This is really great. And yes, this is how I uh, work on my vibrato. I drink uh, lots of coffee. I might have to take a tip or two from you about that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, yeah, so we all started, uh, we all met at the Colburn School in Los Angeles. We kind of dove off as a quartet in 2010, but it kind of start, started before that. I've, I've always had a deep passion for string, uh, chamber music and more specifically string quartet. I had played string quartet since I was in middle school. There's a really small, uh, or it's actually not that small. It's a, a wonderful program. I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio called Chamber Music Connection. And I was lucky to get to go through that program. And I actually met the other violinist, Ryan Meehan, through competitions we did in the Midwest. So he went to high school in... Chicago and I was in Columbus, Ohio, 
And so we met at the first, I think, the St. Paul String Quartet competition and then the Fish Off competition. And we were fierce competitors and didn't speak to each other until we both didn't make the finals at the Fish Off competition. And then ever since we've become great friends. And um, at Colburn, I uh, got the privilege to uh, play with Estelle for a chamber music credit at school and we i remember we played the first movement we played it like i don't know it seemed like 50 times but it was the first movement of shostakovich's second string quartet and really enjoyed our time together and wanted to continue playing uh, quartets together and then we scared off the other two members of our quartet at the time and that's when jeremy joined us and then shortly thereafter uh Ryan joined the crew because, I mean, I, we were thinking we wanted to take it really seriously and I couldn't think of anybody else that would take it more seriously than Ryan. So, um, and we've been at it ever since. And meanwhile, I think I had heard them perform Shosti 3 about 45 times. So I was also sitting there thinking, dang, these guys sound pretty good. It'd be fun to play with them. That is great. Yeah. So Jeremy, you would say that that's an accurate depiction of how the group started. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe 50 is a slight exaggeration, but they, that they definitely... So yeah, let's talk about the time at Colburn because you guys formed a quartet at Colburn and you guys were like, okay, let's all form a group. And these days it's, you know, we have all the tools to have a successful quartet, but yet it's so difficult to have four personalities work together. And Jeff, I'm wondering if you can comment on that mm -hmm. with uh, the personalities of the group and how you guys were able to work together. Yeah. So playing in a string quartet is, I think it's so funny because if you talk, if you were to poll conservatory students, what they would want to do for a living, I think you'd get a surprisingly high percentage uh, response of, oh, I want to play in a string quartet. And I think, I mean, myself included, I would have probably answered the same. Uh, but I'd have, I feel like I had no idea what went into actually playing in a quartet when we first started. And yes, there's uh, the act of, you know, having to travel and the financial difficulties of starting a quartet, but then also you have to get along. And I think uh, that is one thing that we're very fortunate um, for and very blessed to have. We have four people that are just really good friends. And I think that's how we started uh, even before the quartet. Uh, we all enjoyed hanging out and, you know, talking about music, listening to music. So we were very fortunate in that sense. And I mean, I would say it teaches you so much, even though, okay, I'm sure everybody out there has had, even with their best friends, some disagreements and some arguments and, you know, rough patches. So, I mean, that's no different in a string quartet. Actually, it may be amplified because you're, you're literally spending all the, all your time, especially at the beginning, all of your time together. So you learn very quickly how to work with one another and the art of compromise. And I think the most important lesson that I learned is you're not always right, <laughs> though you'd like to think so. But uh, well, in this case, the viola is always right, right? <laughs> because the viola sometimes has an unbiased decision when it comes to two violin things that's true as, as the as the imposter on the violin podcast with a c string i can agree with that oh yeah actually i would say that you might be the only <laughs> you might be the first you might be the first no no you're not the first because we had um abigail from the verona quartet oh nice uh, uh who was yeah i think that was the first episode where i didn't have any violinists actually it was just violin and cello but i'm glad to have a perspective of a violinist and a violist in the same room on the same episode. Yeah, I would say that I would agree. I think a lot of a lot of us who go to conservatory, you have the orchestra route, the quartet route, the teaching route, or the solo route. Those are the more foremost common things. Now I think we're starting to get dive into some really unique territory and some weird waters with this. Um, I think we would say we're comfortably in the 21st century now. I, I would say that like in music history, things kind of happen 20 or 25 years after the turn of the century can you guys comment or Jer jeremy can you comment on uh the quartet role with your technology and how you guys are able to promote yourselves because you guys were able to really succeed from from ground zero you guys all met in school to 
having an established international career going to be um, touring with the Beethoven cycle. So can you comment on that? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's really interesting. I think it's something we, we think about a lot and have regular, I think meetings about with actually just had a meeting recently about, you know, developing our social media campaigns and and such forth. But um, with, there are similarities and I think wild differences for how a group or, or even individuals carve out a career in music performance today compared to, I don't know, 20, certainly 40, 50 years ago. And I, I, I think with, with the development of social media and also YouTube, the, the performer themselves has a lot more ability to carve out their own path compared to how things used to work, which I think was more, no, I'll, I'll take a half step backwards and, and say from a, it, from a music presenter standpoint, the ease and facility for one to be told, oh, you should hire the Calador Quartet or this person or that person. And for them within three keystrokes to know everything about you and to have maybe 10 YouTube videos pulled up and and this and that. Um, so, so, so one has to really uh, particularly craft one's own image online, know what is online to put lots of things online and to be, be aware of one's image online uh, because there, there are plenty of instances where, for example, if you have an agent, that's it's it's certainly and it never was, but it's certainly today. It's it's never an end all. It's like oh, I have got a great manager now, my career is set. You know, no, absolutely not. And then also there are plenty of musicians carving out their own path without agents that are able to do it in a way that may or may not have been possible uh, 20, 30 years ago, and that's really cool too. Yeah, I don't know, Jeff. Do you have anything you want to? Yeah, I mean, I guess this kind of ties back to our time at Colburn. We were, you know, for an, a career to kind of take off, a lot of stars have to align. And at that time at Colburn, we were very fortunate to work with a woman named uh, Laura Leopins. And she she was starting a program at the school called uh, Colburn Artists, which was an in-house management uh, firm at Colburn. And she really, I mean, because when you first start out in a performing career, you have no idea, you get emails about playing a concert and you're like, I have no idea how much we need to charge for a concert or we have no idea how all of the nuts and bolts work. So she was very instrumental in holding our hands through that process and kind of giving us guidance and what steps need to be taken to kind of get the, the quartet off the ground. And she also introduced us to our first manager uh, at Opus 3 in New York. And I mean, it was, we owe a lot to her. And not only just introducing us to, you know, uh, managers and presenters, but also the, like the image uh, that goes along with creating, uh, you know, your, your career. She set up uh, photo shoots and she basically started our career. So, I mean, we're in, uh, I mean, forever in debt to her for what she did to, uh, for us. That's excellent. So I want to dive into the Beethoven recordings because you guys are wrapping up a full Beethoven cycle with Signum Classics. And I just want to get your take on why Beethoven? Why, why record a full cycle of Beethoven? There are many cycles of Beethoven quartets by many other quartets. What, what did you guys want uh, to leave out in the world with these recordings? What, what what led to that decision? In all honesty, it's kind of been a childhood dream of mine. Playing quartets for a long time now, I've always, I've looked up to those recordings that you're talking about. I remember uh, I had the Guarneri box set, the Emerson box set, the Takash box set. Like I had all the boxes. I was those, like, are the those are legendary, by the way. Those are, yeah. if anyone is listening, those are definitely yeah. recordings to take a look at and to listen to. And it was uh, when we were at Colburn, we got to work with Arnold Steinhardt, who was the first violinist of the Guarneri Quartet. And he was talking about the process of recording that first because they did the cycle twice. I think they recorded it twice. And the first cycle is the one that I had when I was growing up. And he was talking about, I mean, they were a very young quartet, hadn't been together for more than a few years. And RCA approached them to record the whole cycle. And they hadn't even learned 
all of the quartets yet, all of the Beethoven quartets. And what he said to us was when some someone comes with an opportunity like that, you just say yes and then figure out how to make it work. We were fortunate that we had played all the quartets by the time the opportunity presented itself, but it was something that I had always wanted to do. And I I kind of view the Beethoven cycle as uh, like a P if, if like your career is like a a pie. This is certainly a piece of the pie of, as far as your legacy is concerned. And no pie is complete without the Beethoven cycle. And I would say that the the thing that keeps Beethoven relevant, I mean, yes, okay, we've every, you know, there's so many recordings of the cycle uh, thus far. But as we continue through time, you're mentioning the 21st century, as we're living in the 21st century now, the quartet's we have a different perspective because life is very different than it was for Beethoven. But a lot of the human emotions, or I would say all of the human emotions that he experienced are the same ones that we still do. So it's kind of a new, each generation will have a new insight to this extremely important repertoire. So we had to, had to take our shot at it. Jeremy, what are your thoughts? Well, I think Jeff just stole most of mine. I, I, I would like to really parrot that sentiment that it's it's absolutely incredible. Um, I think you could say specifically in Beethoven's writing and his slow movements that he captures a timeless sentiment that I think transcends every era from when he was alive to now. That it's It's just absolutely incredible how... For, for a man who, by all accounts, was um, <laughs> a bit rough around the edges with those close to him, that he, he's able to kind of wear his heart on his sleeve in all of these, in all of these majestic slow movements, from, even, from the, even the Opus 18 number one all the way to the late. Um, it's just such incredibly personal, introspective writing. And then, you know, obviously... The, the incredible, you know, loud bombastic movements like the Grossa Fuga and all, all of these things that like, even by all accounts today sound wildly modern. Like I can't imagine having been in an audience hearing that written in his time being like, what the heck is going on right now? This guy's nuts. Uh, because people still think that sometimes when we perform that piece publicly, you know, and, and, and the human ear today is adapted to, to, all different types of loud, crazy music that, you know, that we, we digest from pop culture, that it still sounds crazy. <laughs> I, I, I love it. Like, I, I love that how polarizing some, some of his music like that is that even today people are like, what? <laughs> Come on. Like, what is this? Uh, but, but I think that's, I think that's what makes music amazing is that, you know, one, like you don't have to love everything. And two, everybody should take something different away from a performance, hopefully. Otherwise, what the heck are we doing, right? But yeah, I, you know, it's for, on a personal level, it's, um, it's really cool for us to, to think that we're, you know, leaving our own stamp on something that's existed for a long time. It's, you know, the Beethoven quartets, like it's the 16 quartets, it's like climbing Mount Everest to record all of these, you know, so... So quartets say at least. So it's 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 been a it's been a fun project for us, a tiring project, a long project. Um, but we're we're really looking forward to to these coming out. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. It goes back to what you were saying, Jeremy. I remember uh, I was talking to a composer friend myself and how Beethoven's always trying to reach for the divine. He's always trying to reach up when it comes to his music. I mean, that's one of the most popular things that you study about Beethoven in music history class. Even the music history 101, you, you, you learn about Beethoven trying to reach for something greater. And I think what 
you guys are talking about, and I want to put words in your mouth, but something that I've learned through playing Beethoven's music is that he's, his music is a time machine for me, that you are playing his Opus 18, you play through his heroic period, like the harp quartet is one of my personal favorites, favorites. And then you go into from the transition from the classical era to where he blends into the romantic era, into the 19th century. And to me, that's that's one of the most powerful things about Beethoven. Like Jeff, you said, the 21st century, you, we can give it a, like a different meaning, but you can always kind of connect to that past. And that's what music does, especially in chamber music. And maybe this is just a musician in me saying, but I feel like the late Beethoven quartets are written for the musician. And then, you know, you try to implement that for the audience to really hear. But I think Beethoven deep down inside, in my view, in my personal opinion, he was writing for the for the musician in mind trying to really trying to keep this music timeless recording these what kind of obstacles have you guys run into when talking about interpretation or discussing sound because you have a very unique sound as a quartet what's the, what are the conversations like when discussing sound as a collective group i i, I think well there's probably a ton of different answers for this but we we talk a lot within our group about character and we try to always let that guide our discussions about sound. So, okay. So like, for example, really specifically, so composers obviously write in dynamics. So something could be piano, pianissimo, fortissimo, but we try to never see things as uh, actually our, our, our producer, Judy Sherman uses this, this term kind of like paper markings. She often refers to like paper, paper sports I think like, and, and I think what she means by that is when we, for example, just like do a sports but like, why the heck did Beethoven write a sports there? So, so I, 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 she, she is very attuned to, to realizing when we're just like playing a marking as opposed to trying to, play the intention behind a marking so so for example like so beethoven he writes all, most of his music within the confines of piano to forte and then when you when you really delve into a lot of his music you realize that he does write double forte and pianissimo but for the most part they're rather infrequent so so one starts to realize that for example, these markings tend to have special connotations. So he's not just writing a pianissimo because he wants you to write really quiet or he wants you to play really quietly. He's writing it because there is a really specific structural or color reason for this marking. So, so all of a sudden we, we need to have a discussion of, okay, why is this there? What is this color? How can we make this wildly different than everything else that we've played so far? So, so then we, we need to figure out collectively how to do something really unique with our own playing. Do we want to like all do exactly the same thing and play with like a really cold color or it, it does, it does one person have like a really warm or luscious solo, like for example, in the, in the Cavatina of Opus 130, you know, maybe the lower three don't play with the same type of sound as Jeff on, on violin one. Maybe we do something completely different with coloring. So I, I mean, it's, it's a really, you know, there's probably an infinite number of answers to this question, but I, I, I guess my long winded point is we always try to approach it from what is Beethoven doing? What is he trying to do in our opinion? And then how can we come up collectively with a color that that suits that. I appreciate your answer, Jeremy. And I definitely want to t ask uh, Jeff the same question as the first violinist because Beethoven quartets, first violin, those are huge parts. But it's interesting to hear you talk about sound, Jeremy, because every, you know, these quartets have existed for such a long time. Everybody has their own interpretation and their own sound collective. But it's, it's interesting to hear the process of starting from ground zero to starting from scratch and try to build your interpretation and your sound collectively as a group together. I think that's important. If anyone who's listening, who's trying to start a chamber music group, I think that is so important to have a distinctive quartet sound based on what you're telling me. And Jeff, I want to, I want to dive into uh, your role as a first violinist and maybe comment on what Jeremy has to say about uh, sound because first violins in Beethoven quartets have a really unique role. And I want you to comment on that. 
Yeah. So actually, I want to go back to something that you just said in the what people have done in the past. And we were very fortunate to get to study these works with like a very wide range of uh, people and people with very different interpretations. So, I mean, we started a Colburn Augusta study with Arnold Steinhardt of the Guarneri Quartet, and then we came to New York and got to study uh, these with the Emerson Quartet. And then also we had a two-year period where we would take trips to Madrid, the Reina Sofia School, to study with Gunter Pickler of the Alban Berg Quartet and talk about a first violinist with a uh, uh, a very definitive and uh, confident uh, interpretation of the quartets. He There's would... a story there, but we'll we'll wait for that. Yeah. <laughs> but um, yeah, and I I feel like especially studying the quartets with Pickler, um, he, as far as balance is concerned, he I think he kind of opened up a door for me as as far as the first violin part is concerned. And just playing first violin in general, um, balance is very, can be very tricky, especially if there's melodic material that's in kind of the middle register of the violin, making sure that um, you have very good contact point and that you kind of are always present and that your voice, instead of, there's always like a color and fullness to the voice, even in piano, like how I'm speaking, well, it's probably, I don't know. I don't have a very good microphone like you do, but even while I'm speaking, there's still some uh, a, a certain amount of tone that's coming across in my voice. Where before, if we had what Jeremy was talking about, like the difference between piano and forte, if we had seen piano, we might have interpreted, you know, uh, where we take out that tone from the piano, where it's a little bit less, you know, that uh, wouldn't project so much to the the hall. So, and there's, I think in that, that process, that playing with a fuller tone, not necessarily louder, but just more condensed, that allows for a wider range of color in the whole um, spectrum of sound. Sound is such a difficult, I'm obsessed with sound, a big audiophile, and that's what I spend most of my free time doing is listening but it's so difficult to put into words the concept of sound. But uh, we were also, and uh, the for this recording, we also borrowed some special instruments for the recording. So Estelle, has, she's playing a cello from, uh, it's a French cello uh, by Jaco, who this cello belonged to Ronald Leonard, who was the cello teacher when we were at Colburn and uh, Jeremy, I'll let you speak about the Cerruti, but, uh, and then Ryan for, uh, now has a Panormo violin from the late 1700s. And then I was playing a, a Francesco Ruggeri from 1680. Um, and I think that also playing these instruments opened up a new world of color. I mean, we all had very fantastic instruments before, but some of these colors, just kind of uh, with experiment uh, experimentation and just time with these instruments really kind of set us on a new trail of inspiration. I know that's probably, that's a, like a very long winded answer to your question. And I'm not sure I exactly answered it, but no, but I, no, I appreciate it because it just gives you, it gives us an idea of what you guys think about both you as first violence and violas. And I mean, this is this is awesome. And Jeremy, yeah, if you don't mind commenting on the instrument that you're playing on for yeah, this, sure. that'd be great. Uh, so yeah, as as Jeff mentioned, I've I've been uh, recording on a a, a Trudy from I, I believe it's eighteen eleven. Um, it's just an absolutely beautiful viola uh, that I've been very lucky to um, borrow from a a generous man who supported our quartet a lot. It's it's actually a really amazing instrument. Like when you, when you look at when you look at a or at any instrument that's over 200 years old you know there's there's always you know some repairs some open seams almost definitely some cracks here and there this this instrument almost looks like it just got pulled off a shelf yesterday it's incredible just like beautiful aesthetically and sound wise and it's it's been really inspiring for me to to be able to play on um quite a bit over the last couple of years and anytime you switch instruments it opens up a different awareness in one's brain about what type of sounds are possible and and even like i i uh the, the viola that i own is a 
as a by the maker Muschetti from the very early 1900s, and and I'm I'm very happy to have the viola that I have too. But I I find that when I come back to playing my instrument after the Cerruti, I, I have a very different comprehension of what I'm what I'm trying to do sound wise and, and what I even think might be possible on my instrument when I come back to it. it's 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 an interesting perspective but but no I, I yeah I, I do think that the instruments one plays it, it, it's so intrinsically connected to one's sound it's it's a funny a funny thing like I, I do think at the end of the day a, an individual and a group will always have their sound to it, you know, quote unquote, their sound to a degree. But at the same time, I, I don't know. I, I, I think anybody who says like, oh, the instrument doesn't matter. Like at, I, there, there's a middle ground somewhere. There's a middle ground. I feel ground. like at, at, at one point you're, you're splitting hairs where yeah. if you're looking for specific things within an instrument, it does matter. Mm-hmm. And I actually want to talk and ask about this when you acquire these instruments for the for the recordings was there was there a little bit of an adjustment period was there a change in technique or a change in style to how you approach the instruments for these recordings if you guys don't mind commenting on yeah, that yeah i mean because, i i, I can i know i know for me sorry. when i played on other instruments i definitely had to adapt to the instrument not vice versa and yeah if you guys can comment on that that'll be great and i, I my my personal opinion is like the older the instrument gets the more a player has to adapt to the instrument. And I, I can't tell you exactly why this seems to be the case. If it's just, you know, like instruments are in of themselves an organic thing. So I don't know if it's just that like the instrument being played over hundreds of years, there's like a specific way it maybe wants to be treated or played or handled versus like, you know, I, I used to play a viola um, by, by uh, Greiner um modern german maker and and my experience with newer instruments is that the instrument can kind of adapt to the player so so you can play the instrument in a ton of different ways and it works it's successful versus you know maybe maybe if you have a very fine stradivarius like and and if you try to play the instrument i I, i've i've had multiple friends with that have been borrowing strads who try to play far from the bridge and the instrument kind of just squeaks and doesn't really make much sound but but if you find that sweet spot on some of those instruments it's just absolutely majestic and and so so for my experience playing the cerruti versus the viola that i own i had to learn to be more supple with the instrument i think i i have i at the time at least on my instrument i had a higher tension setup where for <laughs> lack of a better way of putting it i at times had to kind of club my viola a little bit to get the amount of sound out that I thought was necessary. And, and if I, if I do that on the Cerruti, it's, you know, you don't really get, get positive dividends on your investment. It's like the more you put into the instrument, the less you get actually. So you have to be very open and, and conscious of bow placement and, and let the instrument actually do a lot of the work for you. It's actually more, I think, like playing a violin than I was used to. Yeah. So I, and, and it's, it's a funny thing. It's, it's, I think I noticed the difficulty actually more in concerts than in recordings, because when you, when you get like the concert adrenaline rush, you always just revert to what you know, like, or at least I think for most people. So to kind of train my reflexes to be different of like, when you get really excited, don't, attack the instrument do you take a breath relax sink in use the bow uh that that actually took me i think months to to get used to and and, and actually yeah I, I and i think going back to to my instrument now the one that i own it's i, th- I think it's helpful actually to have that that other perspective but but no it, it's it's been really fun though, to 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 be able to play um to play this incredible viola for a while. It's funny because each instrument has its own personality. Definitely. It, you know, it, I, it's kind of cheesier, maybe cliche, but they really do have a, their own personality. And like, if you don't, if you, if you don't adjust to its personality, then the instrument will let you know. <laughs> right. And uh, Jeff, comment on the, on the instrument that you were working on and you're playing with during the Beethoven recordings and how that kind of changed your perspective on, yeah. on everything. 
on playing yeah. and panic and whatnot. So it's a Francesco Ruggieri, the violin. I remember I was in, I think we recorded the first disc in, the first session was in like mid-February. And I remember driving back, uh, I'm originally from Columbus, Ohio, so I was visiting my parents. And I drove back to New York over New Year's to go pick the violin up and get to know it. And that was quite a process. I mean, I remember, I, I don't know if I've played more in my life. It was just, you know, talk to my previous teachers to really figure out like how to adjust to an instrument as quickly as possible. And yeah, playing and like testing what is possible on the instrument, I think is the first step, the, the get to know you step. And it's been yeah, it's been incredibly inspiring. Uh, I would all echo what Jeremy was saying that uh, my previous instrument, my I played a Stefano Scarampella, which is a really fantastic instrument. And but the way in which you produce sound is much it ha- requires a lot more arm weight than the Ruggieri, where the Ruggieri requires more uh, bow speed. I mean, it can take, you know, when you really want to go go for things, but when it really opens up and sings, is when you you kind of let it unlock it and let it fly so that's been yeah i just i don't know there's something you i I, again you can't really put into words what these instruments do and yeah uh you have to let them be be themselves and yeah and uh, that also changes your interpretation and i remember that was one thing i remember changing a lot of fingerings a lot there were a lot more possibilities uh that opened up with the ruggieri so that was also a really cool thing to get to get to see and Jeff was talking before about like sound and balance. I, one of the things that I think is really cool about the Ruggieri is you just you just always hear it. It's amazing. Like it has this like quality and presence that like I don't think the word cuts is the right term. It's just but it's just always there. Like it's it's amazing. Piercing, like, maybe? Yeah, it's it. Yeah, I to a degree. It's it's like I feel like piercing maybe has a harsh connotation that the viol the violin always has a warmth but it's just you don't tend to lose it in the balance like you know obviously we all have to be hyper aware of balance nonetheless but I think it allows Jeff to do really cool things with coloring even when he doesn't have the melody for example if he has an interesting counterplay he can play really quiet if somebody else has something that needs to be in the forefront but it's still it's still always there and I, I think that's one of the things that makes it really unique besides the, the brilliance and the quality and, you know, all of these other amazing things. And that, that actually greatly influences the way all four of us play. It's, it's, an, it's a crazy thing that, you know, one person changing an instrument, for example, can wildly change the way the other three play. Uh, I, I remember actually at the very beginning of the quartet, or towards the beginning of the quartet, actually Estelle changed her cello. And the way the whole quartet played intonation-wise was totally different. It's a weird thing to think about, but just having a, a having the anchor, the bass of the quartet, and and shifting to an instrument that I think had more focus to it, it just changed the way all of our ears hear heard the whole quartet. It's a funny thing. I know in my experience that is a big thing having the cello be the foundation of all the sound that you guys kind of stack and layer that up so that's it's funny how we're talking about this and it's a wonderful conversation i'm really enjoying it and while you guys are playing these beethoven quartets you guys have a very busy schedule ahead of you this year and i want you to maybe comment on the tour life of a quartet because I feel like oftentimes we don't talk about that. We talk about the music we're playing. We're talking about the rehearsal process, the recordings, the promotions, all that. Can you comment on the tour life with the quartet? And how are you guys able to play at such a high level while touring as a collective whole? Can you guys uh, chime in on that? Sure. Uh, so I remember going to a... I mean, many quartet concerts when I was a kid. Uh, I remember seeing the Takash Quartet play in Columbus, Ohio. And I was like, oh, wow, that looks like that'd be really fun. And now thinking back on that, like what goes into getting a quartet on stage? There's so much. I mean, there's the the act, just the physical act of getting the four people to whatever city they need to be in. 
the act of rehearsal, the act of a contract being written, the, the manager negotiating terms. There's outreach involved before the concert. Like everything, there's so much planning that goes into the actual act of uh, touring as a string quartet. And I would definitely say there is a learning curve. And also when you're young, you can get away with, you can get away with murder with the travel and your schedule <laughs> and everything. Um, but I would say, uh, yeah, especially before the pandemic, uh, I think that last season we were playing somewhere between 85 and 100 concerts. And it was, that's on the road, like well over 200 days of the year. So you were you're exhausted. And I, one thing we've learned from many of our, our mentors, how to kind of um, deal with that and playing a lot of repertoire. You can't play all of the repertoire all of the time in all of the rehearsals or in all of your practice, individual practice sessions. You have to have kind of your spots that you hit and everything. So there's that part of uh, that aspect of the uh, preparation and I would say during the pandemic, it was kind of surreal for us to be in one place for such a long period of time. And um, now I feel like we're, we're back at it. In November, we had our first, like, I would say, full-fledged European tour where we had like eight concerts in 12 days. And there's no replacing just like doing that and figuring out what works for you and what uh, doesn't work for you as far as how you prepare physically and mentally and I, it's a, I think it's kind of trial by error, or at least uh, for myself. And you, you learn. Yeah, I think that kind of what does that kind work. of schedule that kind of schedule reminds you of just like a typical basketball player in the NBA because you don't have time to yeah. practice as an entire team. You kind of just have to work on your fundamentals, yes. work on what you need to work on, and then go on the floor and then just yep. you know try to get as many baskets. So I'm I'm. I'm seeing that kind of similarity with the tour live with the quartet because you all have to really trust each other. Yeah. You guys are a team. I wish and... we had those million dollar contracts, but uh... <laughs> well, <laughs> you know, sky's the limit. Inflation could reach us there for classical musicians. <laughs> <laughs> you never know. But um, Jeremy, can you comment on that of the whole touring life and yeah, your course. perspective on it? I'll, I'll, you know, try to just throw some other funny tidbits and but, but um uh, and jeff please uh, fact check what i'm about to say i, I think it's from the guaneri documentary high, high fidelity is the title mm -hmm. um where there's there's a scene i think it's like kind of on the later side where it interviews their manager at the time and they say something to the tune of like god this quartet they don't even realize how successful they could be they they limit me to only being able to book them for a hundred concerts a year and from a musician, you hear that and you're like, 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 how much do you want these poor guys to be playing? Like, do you want to be this manager probably wanted to book them 200 days a year, which would literally mean that they would be touring 365 days. Like it's like what Jeff said, like what goes into doing one concert is a lot more than just playing one concert. Like, I, I think my perception of what a quartet was when I was in conservatory is wildly different than what I realize now. Do I love what I do? Yes. Do is what we do crazy a lot of the time? Like absolutely. And one other goofy story, uh, as, as we said earlier, we worked a lot with Gunter Pickler from the Alban Baird Quartet and, and earlier, kind of early-ish in their career, rather, they had a young manager who booked them a concert that I think made sense on paper and in practicality, it was probably really insane. And I, I think it was one of those things where the agent was kind of thinking, you know, oh, this is like two inches on my ruler on the map, like they can get there in this amount of time. And so apparently, apparently Gunter kind of went up the totem pole with his agency and actually requested that the manager go on tour with them so they could realize what they have done to the quartet. Uh, it's like, if okay, if we have to do this, you're doing it with us. <laughs> I think that also, I think that also really speaks to um, Gunter Pickler, the man who's he's an incredible person and musician, but he could be a a real I don't know stickler for for what he for what he wanted and thought. Uh, but that's also part of what made that quartet so successful and amazing is that he had this 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 drive and personality. Um, Just one more quick uh, like story and what I think we've learned as 
uh, from our mentors and the like the travel aspect of things. We were playing uh, Mendelssohn Octet with the Emerson Quartet in Detroit, and they had just flown in either that day or the night before from Hong Kong. So they're extraordinarily jet lagged. And we had a very brief rehearsal just to kind of touch some things because, you know, everybody was very tired and we're like, oh, I have no idea how this is going to go. And then by the time we got to the concert, it was just like everybody was was there and like was on. So knowing like when the really say you know, like to save your energy for that moment and to to see that and that was really inspiring and I have no excuses going forward here, I guess they can do it. We should be able to do it. I teach that to my students that you have to be prepared to play at any given time, whether it's 9 a.m., 9 p.m. Actually, literally, I had a lesson with a student yesterday and it was 8 o'clock or 7.45. She had a lesson. He had a lesson from 7.45 to 8.15 p.m. And, you know, he's tired. He had a long day of school. He had some extracurricular activities. You know, I teach the youngins, right? And I go, okay, it's 8 o'clock right now. And you said you're tired, right? He goes, yeah, I'm tired. I'm like, just just think about the members of the Boston Symphony, right? Because I'm based in Boston. So just just imagine what the Boston Symphony players are doing right now. They're getting ready to tune their instruments at eight o'clock and they have to perform from eight to ten thirty, depending on whatever symphony they're performing. And they had an entire day of rehearsal. They probably have a family, so they had to, you know, go out to eat, prepare, you know, pick up their kids from school, you know, go back and forth. And then they have to go back to the symphony hall to perform. Yeah. Right. And the guy was like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, I'll, I'll shut up now. I'll stop. Yeah. <laughs> but it, it really does go to show that if, even when you're jet lagged, I think I really couldn't understand the value of that when I was a student. And maybe this, maybe your teachers did this or, or not. But in my grad studies, my professor had lessons at different times every single week. And that, I, I found that to be annoying at first. I'm like, why can't I just have the same time every single week? But now I understand that value of, okay, you're going to have a lesson at 9 a.m. before studio class. Okay, now you're going to have a lesson at 3 p.m. the next week. I think that I didn't understand that back at the time, but now I see the value in that you do have to be ready at any part of the day. Yeah. And whether you're jet lag from Hong Kong or whether you're performing a midday lunch concert series. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, uh, when we were at school at Colburn, there's this thing that they call performance forum where um, a teacher could recommend a student to play in this and it's in front of the entire student body and the whole faculty, uh, like I said, at 11 a.m. And that, I think, there's nothing worse, nothing more stressful than playing for your peers and the other faculty members and to have to do it at a strange hour of the day, I think was really good preparation for the real world. So, yeah, you're right. You got to be ready at, at any time. I've even heard people like musicians auditioning for European orchestras, they would wake up in like the German time zone to practice their excerpt, to warm up and then do a mock audition at that time. Mm -hmm. People do this all the time when you're auditioning for yep. uh, different time zones in the States or in Europe or in Asia, whatever the case may be. I think there is a, that is like a next level step. Like if you feel like you're a good player, try doing that and then see where you are at. I think yeah. that is a great piece of advice that all of us here can recommend for anyone listening to this episode today. Now, I don't want to take any more of your time, but I do want to ask both of you a simple question that I ask everyone on the Violin Podcast towards the end. What is, what is some advice I can give based on playing or career that you can, that you can give to the audience today? Oh, that's a, a great question. Um, well, Kind of piggybacking off of our conversation about um, the tour life, I would say that no matter whether you are in a quartet, orchestra, soloist, or I mean, any anything that you do, I think the individual um, upkeep of your own playing is kind of paramount. And I think that we, as a quartet, we focused a lot on rehearsal very early on, and then we learned how important that individual time and preparation was. So now we kind of have focused, we've kind of shifted our, the way that we kind of structure our day where we leave the, the mornings for our individual time. And that, that time is sacred. So we need um, to do, you know, your scales, all of your tech, your technical work to keep yourself in shape 
for whatever you have to do. And I wish I had learned that a little bit earlier. Yeah, and I, I would just say to anybody out there listening who, you know, maybe is a, or studying music, if you're in grade school or a conservatory or at a university, um, it, I, I think people too frequently, in my opinion, think of themselves as students. Uh, and I think in the opinion of our quartet, if you've been playing an instrument for 10 years, 15 years, 20 years, God, at this point for me, 31 years, um, I, I, I think you're a professional. Uh, so what does that mean? Like, I, I think one should always be broadcasting to those around them who they are, what they want to do for a living. So if you're a chamber music enthusiast, if maybe you want to be in a quartet, you should be, you know, having reading parties and meeting everybody you know and um, getting to know people, playing for people, playing with people. If you want to be in an orchestra to be, you know, having mock auditions in front of a ton of other people all the time. And so, but, but point being like, like, for example, with what we know, if you want to have a career in chamber music, if you're, if you're keeping that to yourself, like it's hard enough to start a quartet once you have a quartet. Um, but, but yeah, in any case, just always, always see oneself as a professional, like you've been playing your instrument for a long time and put in the work and, you know, let everybody know what you're trying to do for a living and just give it your all. Well, friends, this is Jeffrey Myers and Jeremy Berry from the Caldor String Quartet. You can listen to their new Beethoven cycle recordings from Signum Classics, probably available everywhere at this point by the release of this violent podcast episode. Jeremy and Jeff, this was an amazing conversation. I'm glad I made a couple of new friends today in the chamber music world. Pleasure speaking with you and diving into the world of chamber music. Not often do I get to speak with chamber musicians, usually it's violin soloists or teachers or educators. So it's good to have more than one person join in on the call today. Hey, thanks for having us. For everything, Eric.